Hey, Doc. Hey. How's the weather out there in uh, the Bay Area? Oh, it's, we're just starting to get some hints of fall. Mornings are chilly, but uh, right now we're having a little bit of an Indian summer. It's going to be about 80 degrees here in the Bay Area. Yeah. We're actually hotter than you, I think. We've been pushing like 85 and 87 lately. <laughs> what the hell's going on here? But Yeah, you, get, you guys get it more extreme on your end of the country there, for sure. All right, so let's get rolling. <laughs> Third Eye Cinema. Tonight, Dan Watson of the Cult Power Metal Band, Hex, here on Third Eye Cinema. the debut way back in 1983 as Paradox. Hex has worked the San Francisco Bay Area scene, opening for bands like Quiet Riot, Lita Ford, Exodus, Vicious Rumors, Dio, and more. Signed to the legendary shred label Shrapnel Records, Hex put out two unimpeachable slabs of molten steel with two very different vocalists. But all was not well behind the scenes, and subsequent years would find them eschewing both traditional frontmen in style, in favor of first a thrash, then more of a death metal orientation on successive releases, before folding in the wake of an unstoppable wave of very 90s bad taste stateside. Reforming over the last decade and cycling through numerous members of the earlier lineups along the way, Hex has just released a surprisingly solid return to their earlier form, Wrath of the Reaper. Join us as we talk the often harrowing trials and travails of trying to make it in the 80s metal scene, and much more with the surprisingly forthright and amusing Dan Watson, only here on Third Eye Cinema. But first, here's a track off that new album. This is Macabre Procession of Spectres.
we're talking music, and we have with us a man who's fronted an act that's seen its share of hard knocks, a band that's gone through a surprising number of changes, both in membership and stylistic orientation throughout the 80s, only to reappear seemingly out of nowhere nearly a quarter century on, with their earliest and strongest albums reissued, remastered, and jam-packed with goodies, and now topped off with a very solid new album that very much harkens back to their 80s heyday. Please join me in welcoming the one and only Dan Watson, guitarist and the man behind the band Hex. Dan, welcome to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, Gene, thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it. So you have one hell of a history behind you. I mean, you've been around as a band since at least 1983 when you went by the name Paradox, doing songs that would shortly become Hex Classics with the original frontman Dennis Manzo. So let's start with that, because Paradox, not to be confused with the German thrash band mind, right, was right. <laughs> actually doing shows with some fairly big names well before you got the attention of Mike Varney and Shrapnel. Yeah, well, I can see that you've done your homework, Gene. <laughs> Um, yeah, we were um, we were fortunate. We were at the right place at the right time. We'd worked our way up from doing uh, those drunken backyard beer parties and house parties up into the you know local nightclub circuit and the Keystone circuit, the old Waldorf, you know, heavy metal Mondays in the San Francisco. And so we were, we were already to the point where we were you know starting to support other you know more na- other national acts, and then. Our drummer at that time, Dave Schmidt, was from out in Antioch, and there was a place out there called the Concert Barn, and these guys were putting on local shows for local bands, but there was this huge barn, it was a huge stage, and, you know, so they had pretty big gigs going out there, and somehow or another, they got they got plugged into doing these bigger shows with, oh, you know, it was, it was Ronnie James Dio, was just coming from Black Sabbath, and was starting, he had, he had recorded his debut solo album, Holy Diver, I guess it was. And uh, he wanted a with his new band. He wanted a, a place to do that, and it was at that concert bar. And at the time, we were working there. The bass player Bill Peters and I were working at the concert bar and helping them build things. And that was kind of our job. And we were rehearsing out there. They had studio recording studios out there where we we would make lots of demos and things. And we we kind of schmoozed our way into getting on the bill with Ronnie James Dio. Wow, not shabby at all. <laughs> but uh, the short, funny story there, um, the first actual gig was with Quiet Riot and oh, uh, Lita Ford. And so we got to open Paradox, Lita Ford, and Quiet Riot. That gig, man, you know, we got up there. You know, we only had a half-hour set. Right. But the crowd just loved us, man. We'd never, you know, have played in front of that many people before. I, I don't know. I'm, this place held, you know, six or 7,000 people or something. Wow. You know, big stage, full-on lighting, a real concert. You know, it's our first real you know, stadium-sized concert. And we were nervous as hell, but, you know, the crowd just loved us. You know, we were feeling pretty good. We thought, man, we made it. And then two weeks later, we were already set to open for Dio. And, you know, there's a big difference between the fans for Quiet Riot and the hardcore Sabbath fans and stuff for Dio. And so when we opened that show, we thought, oh, man, this is going to be even better. And we got up there, and they did not want us up there at all. They were, it was just a seat. Fingers and cups and ice being thrown at us, and told like well, the one weekend we're getting total acceptance, the next weekend we're getting total rejection. So it was like a roller coaster ride of contrast between those two gigs. But we didn't, you know, they were trying to boo us off the stage, but we refused to go. We were flipping them off and kicking the cups back into the audience, and <laughs> it made us mad, you know. So, but anyway, it was a good experience to, uh, you know, to experience both those extremes of total acceptance and total rejection out that level so that's kind of how things got rolling and then after that you know mike varney contacted us and 
from there, that was kind of a springboard to hook up with Shrapnel Records. So this was in the days when Barney was doing that guitar player column featuring up-and-coming proto-shredders like Ingve, Tony McAlpine, Jason Becker, and Vinnie Moore, most or all of whom would wind up later releasing instrumental shred albums on his label Shrapnel. But yep. while you did get roped into one of his woodshedding guitar contests, you never really got that opportunity. I did do one of those head-cutting things. He didn't even show up to it, you know. And that, <laughs> that, that's how he contacted me. I thought he wanted to do a spotlight column on me because I, you know, I had I sent him the Paradox demo, not really expecting to even hear anything from him. And the guy calls me up, and I, I thought it was one of the guys in the band playing a joke on me, right? Because they all knew I sent him a tape, but it was really him. He asked me if I wanted to do this head-cutting contest thing at the Keystone Palo Alto he was putting on. And I was, oh, I thought we were going to do a column or something. And you no. Know, so oh, I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, opportunity knocks. you gotta got to jump, right? So uh, I went and did that thing, and um, he wasn't even there. And, I, and he never talked to me after that, and so I was just kind of bummed, you know. And so I was waiting, 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 and never heard nothing. And then one day the phone rang, and it's him again. Oh, actually, what it was was a... Uh, you know, John Marshall from Metal Church and Kirk Hammett from Metallica. Right. Those guys ran into Mike somewhere, and Mike had told them that I'm going to do a record with those Paradox guys. And so they told me first, and and then a couple of days later, Mike called me up and asked if we wanted to come out to his house and you know talk about doing a Shrapnel record for Paradox. Yeah, it was a lucky break. So he signs Paradox to Shrapnel, but right away forces a name change on you for reasons I mentioned earlier. So he actually took an unusual route for labels of that era. It sounds like he just gave you a small recording budget and press promotion, but left the album cover and any touring expenses totally to the band? Yeah, yeah. Um, he covered, it was actually a pretty good budget for back then. It was like $10,000 recording budget. I mean, that we don't get that now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... But yeah, he covered, uh, you know, he had a professional photographer shoot our picture, and I think he gave us, like, uh, he, he had a bunch of pre-made album covers he was trying to push on them, but they all sucked. We didn't want them. Okay. So he gave us a $500 budget. He goes, okay, you get 500 bucks, go find an artist and have him paint you an album cover. Right. But I have to approve it, you know. So so we hooked up with uh, our buddy Alvin Petty, did us the No Escape cover, and came up with the Hex logo. And, of course, Alvin went on to, to paint the Metallica's Creeping Death cover, and yep. he did for a few other things, but that's that's kind of how that all came about. So now you have a killer album out, which is No Escape with Dennis Manzo on vocals, and it's the sort of album we used to just consider heavy metal in those days, but later on got classified as power metal. You know, straightforward, non-glammy, new of British heavy metal derived metal in the general right. mode of like Judas Priest, except that sort of thing. But right. you got a nasty surprise when you met with Mike about royalties on the album, so tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, um, at the time, you know, we were very naive, this is our first record deal, you know. We didn't have a manager, really. I mean, um, I don't know if you know who uh, Debbie Abono was, but she was helping us a little bit at that time. But, uh, yeah, we didn't really have anybody to say, hey, man, this is a bad deal, you know. Or So we signed away all the publishing to him unknowingly. And, uh, yeah, he owned the rights to everything. From what we understood, it was for a duration of five years. Then all the rights reverted back to us. That's right. how he explained it to us verbally. And that's how it reads in the contract. But, you know, we had a big fucking, it was a big nightmare trying to negotiate with Mike Barney and Metal Blade trying to get the reissue done because Mike was trying to say that he owned all of everything and that was it, you know. And we had a lawyer look at it and we said, nah, this is very, very vague language. You know, it was old contract. It was a four or five page contract. He probably typed it up himself, you know. So, so there's a discrepancy. And so it was going to cost us all kinds of money to try to sort it out. And so, you know, we couldn't afford a lawyer to go sort this out because we're not going to make any money off this stuff anyway, really. So we 
I don't know how we did it. It took almost a year of going back and forth with Mike Varney to, you know, Mike Varney and I had to settle up. You know, we had some heated exchanges regarding the the terms of the contract, the old contract. And so before we could move forward with Metal Blade, you know, Mike Varney and I had to come to terms and then together we would could work with Metal Blade. So yeah, it took it took a year, man. And I it, negotiations broke down more than once. I was just I threw my hands up and said, "This is ridiculous. It's not going to work." And Mike wanted everything. Wow. And so yeah, it, it was rough. But I don't. I still looking back. I don't know how we got through that. Miracle <laughs> <laughs> re-releases got re-released. <laughs> well, People don't know. You know. It's like what goes on behind the scenes, man. <laughs> So I'm not entirely clear on why, but you've had a bit of a revolving door situation between Manzo, who had a more traditional, clean, and high-pitched power metal style, and his replacement, Dan Bryant, who had a raspier, but you know, still capable of hitting those high notes takes, somewhat akin to what Mike Howe was doing with Heretic and later Metal Church. So yeah. what prompted the changes in membership, and to some extent style, between No Escape and Under the Spell? Well, we would have been more than happy to continue with Manzo. Um, he... He's kind of a, a strange guy, you know. He's, he, <laughs> he kind of dances to his own drummer kind of thing. Right. Great guy, nice guy, smart guy, very very talented. Just uh, he just didn't want to continue after that first album wasn't like a big success. You know, we, like I said, we were all kind of naive and we thought, oh man, once we get this record out, man, we're all, we're gonna be big stars. We're gonna be slipping on gravy the rest of our lives, you know. Right. And of course, that wasn't the case, you know, with no tour support. You know, we after the album came out, we did. Mike did hook us up with a lot of uh, press and interviews and stuff, stuff that was free, you know, rather than put out. A, he didn't spend a lot of money or any money on print ads and stuff. But so Manzo just, you know, after the album came out and didn't do anything, he decided he didn't want to pursue a career in music anymore. And he he's actually good with numbers and stuff, so he got a a, a job at a bank started off as a bank teller and and kind of went the corporate route from there on and it wasn't until 2013 when we got offered to perform at the kit festival that i got back in contact with him to see if he was even wanted to do the show or could do the show or so yeah i didn't talk to him in all that time you know just as the off the cuff thing i like that original cover that your father did <laughs> for, for oh, yeah? Spell. yeah that didn't look good <laughs> yeah you know now looking back it is pretty good but you know again we it needed, you know, the whole idea was to have a bunch of shrunken heads on sticks and skulls and stuff around and right. needed to have a, be edgier, you know, because at the time, you know, we're, to compete in the metal marketplace visually with your yeah. album cover, you know, it's got to be, we wanted it to be uh, harsher and it was just a little tame. Right. Having the, the Aztec jumping around in the in the hexagon, you know, so all you got to do is add some skulls and some shrunken heads on sticks, it'll be great. Oh, no, it wouldn't do it, it wouldn't do it, so, we, <laughs> you know. That's a whole other story, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Monopoly from Rhapsody of Fire, and you are listening to a Third Eye Cinema. Enjoy! This is Lambal from Edinburgh, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, this is James Rivera. You are listening to Third Eye Cinema. I am the King of Hell. Hey, Metalheads, Leather Leone here from Chastain, and as you know, we're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everybody out there. This is Michael Kiske speaking, singing for Unisonic in Plasma Dome, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. So, at this point, metal and its more traditional forms were starting to change, because even acts like Ozzy Priest and the Scorpions started to get a bit glammy, and then you had that sort of tattooed, junky Aerosmith worship thing that came with bands like Guns N' Roses, and now it's starting to take over the scene. But particularly in the Bay Area you hail from, the word in every metalhead's lips, including yours truly, was thrash metal. Now, mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, the only exposure I had to Hex until very recently, it was actually the new album had impressed me enough to go back and pick up the older albums, and then I was like, oh, this is great, uh, was first seeing you listed as an early part of the Shrapnel roster, back when he was still handling bands like Ravage and Wild Dogs, and wasn't mm-hmm. exclusively Shred. But more importantly, see, hearing you guys mention is playing shows with all sorts of big-name thrash acts. You know, it'd be like, come see Sacred Reich with special guests Forbidden and Hex. I'm like, who? <laughs> it took a lot of years before I even heard you guys. But you actually have some really strong ties with the thrash scene right off, namely a certain Exodus guitarist who went up slinging his axe for Metallica. So tell us a little bit about that, how you tied with him. Well, with Kirk? Well, um, the bassist Bill Peterson and I went to um, school with Kirk. We went to the same junior high school. And actually, I think I met Kirk in the sixth grade, and then we were all together in, in seventh grade. And uh, we all knew each other because we kind of lived in El Sobrante. We would hang out, and we were comic book geeks. You know, we'd all, uh, you know, trade comic books and stuff, and so that's kind of how we knew each other. And then right around the same time, we all started getting into thinking we are going to be rock stars and stuff and want to play guitars, and that all came right about that time, early on in junior high school. And in fact, um, Kirk actually got into it before we did because uh, – I, I had a, I started playing guitar when I was nine, and I had this kind of cheap electric guitar I've had kicking around since then, and I hadn't played for several months, and Kirk wanted to get an electric guitar, and I go, I've got an old kind of crappy one. He goes, oh, I'll, I'll trade you, you know? So I ended up, I think this was his first electric guitar. I traded it to him for a uh, $15 and a stack of cream magazines that he cut all the pictures out and put on his walls. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> so yeah. So then later, and then like later, I go fuck. I shouldn't have sold him my guitar because now I want one again. You know. So I, I went out and got myself another guitar. That was a crappy one anyway. But I think that was his first guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened with Dan Bryant? Because on the set that was put out recently, you got a whole bunch of footage on there, and the shows that were with him back in the day were pretty damn good. I mean, he had a solid professional. So why did he depart the band? You know, was it this whole move towards thrash that came after, or was there another reason? Well, we were, after we got Dan in the band and recorded Under the Spell, which we thought was far superior to No Escape. We thought, man, this is really great. You know, we're really going to push through with this album. And um, the, again, there was no tour support. Uh, after we got it recorded, Dan Bryant, through Mike Varney, was going to try to undermine us a little bit there, and uh, he got an audition for Dan with Black Sabbath at the time. Was looking for a vocalist, so he he didn't get that gig, obviously. But yeah. so Dan Bryant always had his own bands going on. You know, he's a really talented guy. He plays drums. He's you know plays guitar. He's a really great guitarist. 
in his own right. So he, he kind of always had his bands were his priorities, kind of, you know, and I think he was using Hex as kind of a stepping stone to his career. So he wasn't fully into it. And after Another Spell came out, we only did uh, a handful of shows, maybe 10 shows with him altogether. And then he was kind of leaning more towards glam. You know, he was right. kind of uh, poof his hair out and, <laughs> you know, wear high heels and tight pants and scarves <laughs> and things. And we're, we're trying to just go with the jeans and T-shirt kind of look, you know. Yeah. So photo shoots were a nightmare because he's always wanted to, you know, look all glammy and stuff. And on stage, we had to say, man, don't wear that. Don't wear that, you know. <laughs> and, and so anyway, he just left. He, he says we kicked him out. But actually, it was kind of like a mutual thing. He was he went on to pursue his own band, and I think he went on to do stuff with Cacophony and some other acts. And so by that time, in the Bay Area, being in the Bay Area and in the club scene, you could see the change, you know, the, which way the wind was blowing. You know, people weren't coming to our power metal shows anymore. You know, everybody's going to the thrash shows. Right. And so we already knew that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to step it up, and we're gonna have to make our music more aggressive if we're gonna remain relevant in the scene. You know, because if we would have continued doing power metal, I think we would have just fizzled out then, you know? Right. So, and plus, we were really, by this time, right around the same time, Dan Bryant left our drummer, Dave Schmidt left, too. So that's how the drummer we have now, John Schaefer, came in, because John Schaefer was kind of Dave Schmidt's roadie and understudy. Right. And uh, so we took him under our wing and kind of and got him up to speed on the drums so we could, you know, continue. And we were all pissed off, man. We were, thought we just got shortchanged, and we deserved a lot more than recognition than, than we were getting and so you know, rather than give up you know we're, we're too stubborn or too stupid to give up whatever however you want to look at it <laughs> we, we, it just manifested itself in our music and we knew that we're gonna have to fucking play faster and heavier and be more brutal than any and if we're gonna do that we're gonna try to be more, more brutal and thrashier and faster and more technical than anybody else you know and that was kind of our attitude and once Bryant and Dave Schmidt left the mix, Dave Schmidt didn't want to do thrash metal either. Right. But, uh, you know, John was a little bit younger, and um, Clint, you know, was younger. They were more into Metallica and more into the thrash scene. So their young blood kind of uh, helped Bill and I together. We went in that direction. And when uh, we decided, you know, fuck this whole lead singer frontman bullshit, so it just wasn't working for us. Right. We just, you know, we all tried out to sing, you know, let's see if one of us can do it. And uh, Clint... You know, by far was the logical choice, you know, because he just has a really good look and he had that his vocal style was way edgier than it wasn't like the melodic, you know, traditional right. singer. Like that we was... have not like Eddie is. That's kind of how that all came about. And, you know, we did the Help Yourself demo, which got us our deal with Music for Nations. And that's how Quest for Sanity was born. And that's the actual transition from when we went from power metal to thrash metal and then then doors started to open for us on that level we could play with uh corner and you know death angel and dark angel and that's uh, when i was seeing your name on flyers and stuff oh, like, yeah, started, started booking <laughs> with all these other bands and we could get the we could get the thrash pig going man and we we're happening you know we we're touring and so i think if we had not have done that i think you would not be we, there'd be no hex right now at all you know that's something we had to go through 
So by the time you put out Quest for Sanity and then the Watery Graves EP, you know, we're all the way into the early 90s now. So you're still kind of struggling in terms of label support or lack thereof, because I understand there was some business with Music for Nations not really wanting to cover like Watery Graves. But you've kind of moved from power metal to thrash, and now thrash was starting to see its best days. So with Morbid Reality, it seemed like you made a further jump into what was then at the height of its powers, the death metal scene. So what was up with that? Morbid Reality was the manifestation of all our frustrations and all our energies that we felt were going to waste. Like, again, we had very little tour support. We had some with Quest for Sanity. Uh, you know, when we did the American deal with Wild Rags Records, Richard C. hooked us up with some a little bit of touring and stuff here in the States, and so that helped. But by the time we did that and we're ready to make a full, another full-length album, we were just livid about how we're not successful and how everyone else around us is being successful. And at the time, uh, we were friends with all the guys from Sadus, and, uh, well, we still are. But, you know, and those guys, well, you know how technical they are. Yes, sir. We, uh, we kind of had a friendly, unspoken kind of competition, I guess you'd say, where, you know, we try to outdo each other in terms of how ridiculously complicated we could make our music and still play it <laughs> while we're stoned and drunk, you know? <laughs> so, well, when we were young, I could do that. Yep. So Morbid Reality was, we were just, all right, man, we're going to make the most brutal, fucking ridiculously crazy album. You know, we smoked a lot of pot, you know, and so that's how those songs are so crazy because we're all high. <laughs> <laughs> we, were high we were high when we recorded them. We were high. We had to be high to go play them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we got a little bit out in left field on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so... After that, even, I understand you had recorded the better part of an entire album that never saw the light of day. What happened there? Uh, we didn't actually record it. We just had live rehearsal recordings of, of, the, of the material. Okay. And uh, see, at the time, we'd, we uh, actually, just to backtrack just a step or two here, um, okay. after Quest for Sanity and Watery Graves kind of ran its course, we could not get anyone to, to sign the band for another recording, and we couldn't get anyone to fund it. So we were like, well, all right, we're going to call it quits or the, all right, well, we'll figure it. We'll raise the money somehow ourselves and record it. Cause we had our buddy John Marshall is an engineer, you know, so he, he engineered Quest for Sanity and Watery Graves recordings. And so we had a killer engineer that knew our shit, knew us. And so we decided to get the money together. You know, we all, each of us took out a loan or sold something or whatever. And we came up with, I don't know what it was, six or eight thousand dollars needed to record a new album. So we recorded Morbid Reality ourselves and uh, paid Kent Matthew to do the artwork. So we had the whole package together. So we figured if we have the whole thing together, it'll be a lot easier to sell to a label because they don't have to guess if it's going to be any good or guess, you know, wonder what it's going to be like. It's like, boom, here it is. Here's the album. Here's the artwork. Here's the entire body of work recorded. You know, let's make a deal. And so we passed that around to everybody, man. We, we shopped that, I don't know, for months and it just... The door is just emphatically shut in our face, you know, time after time, projected, projected away. Well, the last thing we need is another thrash band on the label, you know. Yeah. So we were about, we were about just to give up, man. And uh, one of the guys from Sadus, in fact, I think it was the, was it Darren or John the drummer, I forget. One of those guys said, "Oh man, you guys should check out this label called Century Media." So I had, I think I had one package left. It was my own, my last package, you know, because we had little packages made up. And I, I sent it to them. He gave me their address, and I forgot about it, you know. I, Weeks went by, and I just, nah, we're done, you know. Yeah. And then one, I got home from work, and there was a message on my machine from somebody from Century Media saying, hey, man, let's talk about putting your record out. And 
I'll, I'll never forget that, man. I was, I just poured myself a cocktail. I'd been out working on the hot sun all day and I was tired and sweaty and depressed and I just started jumping around and knocked my cocktail over, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I called all the guys, you know. <laughs> last minute save, why not, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so once again, we we're saved at the last minute you, from oblivion. <laughs> you mentioned that John Morris was doing some of the engineering on this. Was this before or during his time in Metal Church? Uh, this was before because, uh, yeah, I think we did this all before he hooked up with Metal Church. Because at that time, he was still off and on Kirk's, Kirk Hammett's guitar roadie. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I can't remember. He, he went from being Kirk's roadie to being one of the guitarists in Metal Church. Then after that, he was pretty, he was too busy. But by then, we had, uh, I think we already recorded Morbid Reality. Hey guys, this is Alex Byron of Sun and Force, Voodoo Circle, Cinema, Primal Fear, and Rock Meets Classic. And you guys are listening to Third Eye Cinema. Wow. <laughs> you may have to grab most of them in there. <laughs> Okay. Hi, this is Chris Impelitary from the band Impelitary, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is DC Cooper from Royal Hunt, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is Gigi from Phantom Blue, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Okay, okay. Hi, everybody, this is Lee Christine from Leave Size, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Welcome. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Bowles from Ring of Fire. You're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is Udo Dogsnader, the singer of UDO, and you're listening to the show Third Eye Cinema. So now those of us who were there know the metal scene was kind of dead at this point here in the U.S. in the wake of grunge and college rock, which now is called alternative and a widespread mockery of all things metal. It was, yeah. a pretty, it was a pretty brutal time for all of us in that respect, especially for any bands trying to make a living. So mm-hmm. you make what was probably the practical decision to call it a day there. So two questions. What have you been up to you know, for a good 20 years after that? And more importantly, what happened to bring you back to the studio, complete with Bill Peterson and Dennis Manzo in tow, for the Up From The Graves demo in 2013? Oh, well, what, what happened was once the band broke up, I was suffering from what I call metal fatigue. <laughs> You know, you can only bang your head against the wall for so long without any success, and you, yeah. you know, so all right, well, enough of that. And uh, while we were getting into morbid reality, I was kind of secretly getting into other forms of root music, you know, like blues and uh, old country and folk music. I'd be listening to that while we were driving on tour, you know, playing all these crazy, you know, morbid reality shows. And I'm listening to Hank Williams and you know, listening <laughs> to Hank Williams or Bill 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 here, you know. <laughs> Wow. And the guys were going, what the hell? What the hell is what he looks like? Everybody else was listening to thrash metal, you know, and I'm, I'm totally in a whole other place. So I was already kind of wanting to explore, you know, other forms of music. So after the first year, I just totally dove into roots music. You know, I was all I was listening to was old original blues artists and country artists and right. folk artists. And I started experimenting around writing songs in that, in those genres. And, um, I actually taught myself to sing. I was in the painting trades all the whole time. This is all going on. So I was working the whole time and I had an hour commute to drive to work and back. So I had, I bought these tapes, you know, that you could sing scales and teach yourself how to sing. And I would practice (laughs) practice singing on the way to work. So I get an hour of practice, you know, cause I'm sitting in traffic for an hour. I got to make use of my time. Right. So after about six or eight months, I could, I could kind of sing a little bit and, uh, started, um, I got Bill Peterson, roped him into it. And, uh, I had written some kind of country rockabilly kind of sounding songs. And I got, see, Bill wanted to start playing with me and maybe demo some of them up, you know, just for fun. Yeah. 
so we did. I had about 12, 15 songs going. He, he liked them and we're, you know, he started off with the electric bass and one thing led to another and we got, he and I got more into it and into it. And next thing you know, it's, uh, I talk him into getting a stand up bass, you know, acoustic stand up bass, yep. like rock and blue guys play. Yep. And so he learns, he took to that like a duck takes the water, right? And he's, he's digging that. And then he starts singing harmonies, like old timey country harmonies to my vocals, you know, singing these songs. So we came up with this band. We called it the Tombstones. Right. Like, not tombstones, but tombs, tones. And we did a 20 song demo. Oh, also, at this point, we, Bill and I made these demos and we sent them to John Marshall, who at the time was in Metal Church and he was up in Washington. And he was digging them. He goes, Hey, man, these are great. He goes, well, When I get back, you know, let's, let's record some more demos and stuff. So by the time John started doing demos with us, and so we had about 20 songs ready to record. And then around this time, I think he had left Metal Church. You know, John was uh, battling or suffering with diabetes his whole life. So it was really hard for him to play on the road, you know, because that time was before he had to give himself injections and stuff. But not like nowadays, they have that shunt they can put in your side or whatever. So being on the road is too hard for him. That's why he ended up leaving Metal Church. And plus, he, he met his wife, you know, wanted to get married. And then he ended up working at Boogie, in Mesa Boogie. So anyway, we, we made a 20-song demo, and uh, it came out really good. From then, we did another CD called The Tombstones. And we just, I just kept writing songs, and we just got, kept getting better and better. And so we had this band going. We'd be playing weddings and club gigs. We kind of played the San Francisco rockabilly scene. There was kind of like a scene here, you know. We actually did three CDs and that 20-song demo. We actually recorded our last album. We recorded, and our drummer, you know, both their their wives got pregnant, and so. We, we had this killer recording all done. We, it just sat on the books for 15 years because, you know, while well, those guys raised their children. And yeah. we're just mixing it now. We're mixing it now. So we got one song left to mix, and it's, it's really good. It's, so we're going to drop that at some point and blow everybody's mind. Nice. And then also in between that time, I answered an ad in a local magazine for a band that was looking for a psychobilly guitarist. Right. And since I, I, was, I answered the ad, I was the only one that even knew what psychobilly was. <laughs> so I got the gig, right? So that's what the hell Billy's. So nice. that's how I got into the Hellbillies, and then we, I was with the band for a month, and then we had a, a festival to play in the Great Yarmouth, England, with a, I forget what they call it, the, the big rockabilly, psychabilly festival they have every year over there. And, and then from then, you know, we, I've done, uh, and then Bill actually got in with the band too, we did Blood Trill, like one, and Troy Laquetta, from the Tesla actually engineered that, that album for us. You know, we toured all over the, toured Europe three times, and you know, a bunch of shows all over the states, and to answer your question, and, you know, Bill and I got into rockabilly and psychabilly and did that, which no, not a lot of people know about that. Does so, Bill ride his bass, you know, the stand-up bass, like uh, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, we tried to do that, you know, but it's really hard to play. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, he doesn't He doesn't go off like that, like, you know, Bill Black from, you know, Scotty Moore and those guys. But uh, uh-huh. he could shred on the stand-up bass, that's for sure. But he, he plays with real strings, you know, real steel strings. He doesn't use those nylon weed strings like a lot of the kids do, you know. He plays with real bass strings, and so he's the man. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you to come back together to do that demo in 2013 with Manzo? Oh, that, we can blame my wife on that one because... uh she was bugging me to get onto Facebook, and I'd been, I don't want to do that, man. You know, I just, I just want to be alone. I don't want to be part of some, some big community, and, you know, I just, just kind of being by myself. I, but she talked me into it, you know, so she set up a page for me, and, man, the very next day, I get, I don't even know how to use, I don't even know my way around the how to get around Facebook at all, and I see a little thing about a chat. Somebody's trying to talk to me, and I, oh, what's that? And 
It was Laurent Remedier from Snake Pit Magazine. It's like the guy latched onto me. I was, I was in 24 hours. He, he was like <laughs> latched onto me, man. He goes, hey, man, you know, you guys have a lot of fans and stuff in Europe, and I know a guy that puts on these big concerts, and you know, he'll, he'll pay for you guys to come over and and play. You know, if you want, if you can get the band back together. And that was the last thing I wanted to do because I, I, you know. I, I, there's no way I wanted to play Morbid Reality, Quest for Sanity songs, and that's what I figured they wanted. But it turns out Oliver Weissenheimer, the guy that puts on the Kit Festival, he uh, they only wanted us to play stuff from our first two albums, which is that's the material's a lot easier to play, and it's a lot for an old guy, it's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> Morbid Reality, you know what I mean? Right. So I found out that they wanted us to do that. So that kind of put a different complexion on the matter. I thought, well, that might be kind of fun, you know. And I talked to Bill about it. He didn't want to really do it because he didn't want to. He didn't, he just didn't wasn't interested in doing hex. We've been doing rockabilly and stuff, and we've been doing that for twenty years already. And we're kind of that had kind of run its course too. And I thought it might be fun to play those old heavy songs again. And I thought, no way, we're never going to get everybody back together for that, man. That's crazy. Yeah, you're right. We, we, yeah, it's not gonna work. And I kept thinking about it. And the more I kept thinking about it, well, let let's try it, you know. And so one thing led to another. And Bill reluctantly agreed. You know, I think he he agreed just to to please me. I think you know, as a friend, <laughs> I don't think he really wanted to do it. <laughs> but he was all right, Watson. If you want to do it, all right. And so I tried to get a hold of um, Laurent. Was actually helped me get a hold of Dan Bryant. And I got a hold of Dan Bryant. And he goes, Yeah, man. Okay, that sounds good. Let's do it. And then uh, I just, the whole idea was we're going to have Manzo sing everything from No Escape, and then Dan Bryant was going to sing everything from Under the Spell. We're going to do both albums in their entirety at that festival. And and then so, okay, Dan's on board. Our original drummer, Dave Schmidt, just quit playing drums. So I'd, I was working with this other drummer at the time, Gary Gutfeld. So just out of convenience, you know, Bill liked him and stuff. So we thought, okay, well, let's use, it, use him, try to get him up to speed with the metal. Clint Bauer didn't want anything to do with it. So... We just decided, okay, Bill and Gary and, and I and Dan and Manzo will do it. And I, oh, I got a hold of Manzo finally, and he he was into it. But then I lost touch with Dan Bryant. He, you know, he's a, he's kind of a strange guy too. You know, he's lead singer. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, he he changes his cell phone periodically because I think you know he he'd been in some trouble with the law and was you know been in prison and Jeez. runs with some shady characters and stuff and. He's, you know, somewhat maybe could be involved in some somewhat un- unlawful activities. I'm not going to go into it, but nah, nah. so <laughs> you know, so anyway, he changed his number and never got back to me, and nobody could get a hold of him. And so I just figured he changed his mind and was just blowing me off. So okay, so that means but Manzo was into it. So okay, we'll just do it with Manzo, and we'll just do one that we won't do both albums. We'll just do mostly No Escape and some stuff from Under the Spell. So that's how that came about. So. I really liked that demo, and I thought Manzo sounded great. But I'm also picking on a lot of edits. It's almost like a sound collage on some tracks. Was that a deliberate choice to record the vocals that way, or was there a story behind that? Oh, man, there's a hell of a story behind that. <laughs> <laughs> Manzo is a perfectionist, and okay. and he he has, let's just say he's, he has issues. And <laughs> uh, this kind of happened when we recorded No Escape, too, but... To a lesser extent, because um, you know Mike Barney was there, you know, cracking the whip on our recording time there. But Dennis likes to do lots and lots of tracking, ridiculously lots of tracking. I got John Marshall on board to do this demo. We had whatever it was, three or four or five songs kind of going, and uh, you know, I figured we'd we'd record it in my basement, and you know, we'd get the basic tracks in one day, and then 
I'll dub my guitars the next day, and the following weekend we'll do vocals and and maybe do some mixing. I figured it would take two weeks, three weeks tops, you know, to knock this thing out, because I wanted to keep rehearsing, because we were trying to rehearse for the Kit Festival. We had a whole year to rehearse for the Kit Festival, and it wasn't going good, because Dennis couldn't get through one song without stopping. You know, he'd sing a phrase and skip a phrase, and, you know, (laughs) he had not been singing, and the drummer were having a little trouble getting Gary up to speed, and, uh, well, we figured we had a year, you know, we got plenty of time, you know, we'll be ready. And man, time went by and we, Dennis, when it came to doing his vocals, he ins- I, we started off doing on my little Fostex 16 track, you know, digital multi-tracker. Now I had total control over it. That's how it was going to be. I was just going to do it on this, on my little machine. Oh no, Dennis refused to sing into the multi-tracker. He said, we have to put everything, dump everything into a computer program and do it on the computer and which takes the whole project out of my hands and into right. his hands because he had the computer program. He knows how to use it. I don't know how to use the computer program, but I'm old school. I just do it on my little, I need knobs and dials and levers and stuff, you know, and he, he's got to have it all into the computer. So, you know, he had us over a barrel because it's either we, we don't do the demo because he refused to do it any further unless we put it into the computer. So rather than, you know, cause a problem, and plus I need him for the gig now. You know, he's got us by the balls. So I already agreed to the gig. We have to do the gig, you know. So, you know, they they buy plane tickets, like, way in advance and shit, you know. So I'm I'm on the hook. Yep. So i got to fucking go along with it. So he dumps everything into his computer, and, wow, man, he's at home doing tracking so he can track his own vocals at home. And he literally puts hundreds of vocal tracks Yep. And all this crazy, crazy stuff, unnecessary stuff, you know, all these weird vocal things and screams and, you know, harmonies and things. And we get back to my house to, to start mixing it, and it's just insane amount of overtracking. Yep. And That's he, what was, <laughs> he was married to every track. I mean, it was like pulling teeth to get him to like, now nah, we're going to at least take these 14, 15 harmony overdubs off, okay? <laughs> 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 oh, no, man, that's, that's my art, man. That's my thing. Like, oh, man, so we went round and round about that, and and that's why it sounds so edited, because it is. It's oh, it's like we're just ready to hang ourselves, you know, and it, it wow. just took six months to do this. So the demo, that out-of-the-grave demo almost never happened, because I got fed up with them several times. But like I said, you know, we're committed, so rather than rock the boat, I just had to go along with it. So, yeah, that was that was a nightmare, man. I, I'd never record with Manzo again. Never, never, never. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so history was repeating itself, you know. <laughs> after that, was that it? That was the only you did one show with Manzo and then done. Well, we did a, a warm up show at this little club a friend of mine has called Merchant Saloon in uh, Jack London Square here in Oakland. We did that the week or two weeks before we were to, to leave for Germany for the show. I was really nervous, man, because it still had been a year and Dennis had could not sing the entire set all the way through. And it's only a 50 minute set, you know, and you know, he has to stop and he'll, he'll leave out a verse or he'll leave out a line or leave out part of the chorus, you know, and he's, it's not complete. And the fans over there, man, they're, they're hanging on your every word. So you can't do that, man. You gotta, they know, you know, if you're not doing it right. Yeah. He, I mean, the rehearsal before that, before that warm up show, he, he wasn't doing it, but at that show, he got through all the songs and sang all the lyrics and the drummer, you know, kind of barely got through everything, but it was like, okay. Oh, I, so I didn't know until like a couple of weeks before the show, how if we were going to be able to pull it off, you know? So I'm, like, wow. I'm a nervous fucking wreck, man. I'll be honest with you. I was just like, Oh my God, what have I got? Why did I agree to do this? This was a mistake. 
<laughs> and then on top of that, you know, I've, I've got my my flying V, which is my main guitar, my Gibson flying V. I had leaned it against my amp, and right after our show, you know, a bunch of people wanted to talk to me. Normally, as a rule, after I'm playing, I put my guitar away first thing because I don't want it to get fucked up. Or, and I got distracted, you know, some people I knew were at the show, and you know, so I went over there and started talking to them anyway. Our drummer Gary, you know, I left it there f- for too long, and you know, we're everybody's getting ready to pack up, and Gary was helping us take down. We had our our backdrop behind the amps, and he climbed up on this uh, step to help un- unhook the backdrop, and he put his hand on my amp, and it pushed forward and knocked Ooh. my V forward, and it fell on the concrete floor and busted the headstock. Oh, so my, my guitar that I'm used to playing all the time is now broken a couple weeks before the gig, right? I don't have time to get it fixed. Luckily, my secondary guitar is a Gibson SG Standard, which plays plays pretty similar to a Flying B, but not the same. Yeah. But I could get by on it. So it had an issue. It still doesn't have a fix yet. It's got an issue. I think it's got a a broken or a cold solder joint at the input jack. Right. So it's not. I don't get a real good signal out of it, so I, I use it for just practicing at home with my little practice amp. I don't really perform with it, but I had to perform i had to use that guitar so anyway it just wasn't it was not an ideal situation at least they didn't use it like they did on the last tour we went on over there but but yeah that's all (laughs) so now you get dan back for at least two songs in studio and you did a couple of shows so but then he walks again so what was the deal with that oh that's the whole lead singer thing man See, I, I got back in touch with Dan Bryant after we got back, and I thought, okay, well, let's go. And then we got invited to do the Headbangers Open Air, right, the following year. So, okay, great, I got Dan. We'll we'll do what we were going to do before. You know, we'll get Manzo to sing No Escape, and I figure we'll do, you know, Manzo will come out and sing, you know, a song or two, and then he can step back and take a break, and Dan Bryant can come out and do a song or two from Under the Spell. We'll kind of mix it up so those guys don't have – because they're, they're old, they're having a hard time keeping up their breath, and so this yeah. way they can each have a little break and – and sing their song because uh, Manzo was having a hard time singing the songs from Under the Spell, and Bryant was having a hard time singing songs from No Escape. So I thought that'll be perfect. Oh no, oh no! Dennis Manzo refuses to share the stage with Dan Bryant. You know, cause I guess he thought he was better than him or something, and didn't look bad or whatever. Thought Dan Bryant would, you know, show him up or something. So he he, he just quit the band. He just I refuse. You know, that's it. I'm out. Oh, plus we had some issues with songwriting. I was. He was being very difficult. He wouldn't use any of my lyrics or my vocal phrases for any of my, my songs. And I go, man, you you know, your stuff is cool, but it's, it's not really the direction we need to go, you know. And yeah. So we had a falling out over that. So anyway, he quit. So Dan Bryant was now the singer by default. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to do the Headbangers Open Air. So, you know, I got to go with Dan Bryant. And Dan Bryant's a lovely guy. He's a really nice guy, but he's not without his issues, you know, so... It's just like history was repeating itself, you know? Wow. And uh, so we we had a whole year to prepare for the Headbangers Open Air. Dan Bryant's on board, you know. This time I got our original drummer, John Schaefer, to replace Gary because Gary yep. kind of fucked up at the Kid Festival. And so I, I, mean, I got to have, have a metal drummer. So John was on board, so I got John Schaefer back in. We got Dan Bryant. We got a year. You know, every – we were at the band – rehearses on um, a couple weekends a month you know the our drummer john lives a four-hour drive away and right. we're all spread out all over the bay area so we get together a couple of times a month on the weekends and dan bryant we would get together on saturday and we rehearse at the um, computer shop where i work we close at three on saturday so 
on the weekends we're going to rehearse, the guys show up after three and we set up and we, we jam. Dan Bryant wouldn't join us till Sunday. Dan Bryant's on a totally different schedule than the rest of us. He's, you know, he, um, he's a night person. So he sleeps all day and is up all night. And the rest of us work regular day jobs. So we're up all day and we sleep at night. So what happens is the guys stay at my house on Saturday night, most of them, and we, you know, have dinner and, you know, cocktails and watch movies or whatever. And then we get up and go to rehearsal Sunday morning. The drummer gets to drive back to Tahoe. So Sunday mornings are our main jam, you know, and that's when, you know, Dan Bryant would join us, but he's asleep, you know, he, he just got to sleep. So he, he would have me call him around noon. We'd get there around 10 and warm up and start going over everything. And then I'd have to call him, wake him up. And so if I call him at noon, he, he, he'd show up maybe around one or one thirty, and just in time to maybe go through the set once. And he'd show up all disheveled looking like he just came out of bed. Look, I look half the time it looked like he'd been sleeping in the weeds or something. His hair, hair's all fucked up, <laughs> pants and all disheveled, and you know sunglasses on, and you know it's just you know it's just kind of waking up like we you know like he just got to sleep and we just woke him up. So it was comical, you know, if it wasn't if it wasn't so serious. <laughs> and uh, so this went on for this went on for almost a year, and then I was noticing how he still is having to read the lyrics off the lyric sheet. I mean, after six months in, and I'm, I was, hey, Dan, you know, um, you got to start weaning yourself off those lyric sheets, you know, because you got to, you know, you got to have all shit committed to memory. And he'd sang the songs before, you know, I mean, yeah. back in 86. <sighs> sure enough, man, we got closer and closer to the gig. A couple of weeks before the gig, you know, we're going to fly to Germany. He still doesn't have the lyrics memorized. He still has to read them off the lyric sheets. And so he was planning just to read the lyric sheets on stage. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I just, he was kind of mentioned that, and I go, well, Dan, you know, all the other singers are going to know their lyrics, you know? <laughs> and he just didn't fucking get it. So, um, and the other thing, you know, he has, is he has his own band, the Road Vikings, right? So I noticed when he plays with the Road Vikings, he, he has all those lyrics memorized, you know, right. committed to memory. He just, he just fucking wouldn't. He wouldn't take the time to commit the lyrics to memory. It wasn't that important to him. Right. So he takes his, his lyric notebook and he puts it in Mike's, my corner, our bass player, puts it in his bass case when we travel, you know, to go fly to, to Europe. Yeah. Mike, you know, he had, he had a Thunderbird bass and he couldn't find a suitable flight case for it. So he made one out of, you know, really thick cardboard and duct tape. And I had an fl actual flight case for my view. By this time I got my flying B fixed. And I've got a flight case for it, you know, an airline's approved flight case, you know, where they have the key for it, you know, so they can open yep. it and check it out. But anyway, Mike has this homemade fucking bass case, and we put the lyrics in there. I guess what happened was, you know, the airlines was suspicious of the bass case because it couldn't open it easily. It was all duct taped together. And so it, it got held back in San Francisco. So when we get to Germany, where is it? We're in Hamburg, I guess. And our guitars don't make it. And Jeez. so you know, they're lost and they don't know where they are. So we're hoping that they show up. Anyway, they don't show up in time for the gig. So I, we get to the gig and I've literally got an hour before we go on and I have to scrounge up a guitar and a bass for us to play. And the promoters, I guess they didn't understand, you know, they, there was a communication issue. I said, our guitars are lost. All right, have a good show. You know? <laughs> I'm on my own, 
camera at him, running around trying to find bars <laughs> of guitars. And uh, the whole time, you know, Dan Bryant's following me around. You know, he's trying to write down the lyrics, rewrite down the lyrics. He's got his iPod, and he's listening to the lyrics. He's trying to, on another notepad, he's got, he's trying to write down the lyrics, you know, because he doesn't fucking know them, right? So, um, I'm, you know, he's following me around and asking me, well, how do the lyrics, what's the, what's the chorus go here? And I go, hey, man, i got to find us some guitars, you know? And uh, it was just, it was stressful. Okay, I was very, it wasn't like some nice gig, you know, I was like, oh, boy, this is going to be great. It turned us into a total stress fest, you know? Yep. So, luckily, the guys from Aftermath, let us use their guitars. Uh, the bass was actually a bass was uh, just like the my uh, was a Gibson Thunderbird. Like so, Mike was fine. Hey, this is just like my bass. And the guitar they had was a Jackson, uh, one of those cheap Jackson where the necks come off, you know, bolt-on yeah. neck. And it played really well, but they go, ah, this doesn't stay in tune very good. And I go, oh, I'll, I'll deal with it, you know. Fucking um, so, Dan Bryant, you know, you know, right up until. But a second before we're supposed to go on, he's still writing down lyrics, and I don't think he finished writing them all down. <laughs> it's, it's, wow. it's, 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 and it just starts pissing down rain, and the wind kicks up, and we're we're supposed to go on. So okay, here we go. We're on. You know, Dan Bryant's wearing his sunglasses. It's dark, cloudy. He's pouring down rain. Wind's blowing. You know, and his lyric sheets, you know, with his chicken scratch writings on, it's all flopping around, blowing around on the stage floor. <laughs> And, you know, we have to play, man. It's our slot, you know. It's like, yeah. you know, we can't wait any longer. We're on our schedule, you know. So we start to play the first song, man, my, this guitar just will not stay in tune. It goes out of tune after I do my first solo. And for some reason, my I have a little um, digital tuner I take with me. And for some reason, that thing was on the fritz. It would not. I mean, I could these things for years. And, they, you know, it's one of those boss tuners. The needle's jumping all over the place. I don't know if I had a voltage issue, you know, or something. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't work, but it would not work. So I couldn't just sight, you know, when you step on it, it bypasses your your guitar, your amp, so you can tune silently. Right. Do that. I had to tune out loud, you know, ding, 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 <laughs> over the whole fucking concert, right? <laughs> and the whole time, you know, Dan Bryant is kind of a loose cannon, man, and um, you never know what he's gonna say on stage. He says some pretty weird shit. <laughs> so we were, we were cognizant that we didn't want to leave a bunch of time in between songs for him to say stuff because he, man, back in the day he would, uh, some guy would yell something and he would say, hey man, you know, I'm going to come down there and kick your ass and fuck your girlfriend, you know, he'd say shit like that <laughs> on stage, you know, and you guys want to fight us after stage, so, you know, you never know what this guy's going to say, right, I just wanted to get to the gig and, you know, but oh no, you know, my guitar would not, every, tune, every song I had to retune my guitar out loud, bing, bing, bing. And the whole time Dan Bryant's, you know, saying crazy shit, you know, in between songs. I, I can't, ah, you know, it was, it was stressful. <laughs> and you can see some of this on the DVD, folks. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they, they cut, they cut out, you know, if you notice, they cut out as much as they could in between songs. And uh -huh. you actually see, like, I'm actually tuning during some of the songs because I'm just, you know, and, it's some, and then I look at some of the pictures they took of them. I'm, I'm, you can see it in my face. I'm just so pissed off, you know. It's like, I'm not having a good time. And we... For us, we wanted to. We didn't have a very good performance at the Kit Festival, so we thought this was our chance to redeem ourselves. And it was better than the Kit, but it it was not without its issues, you know. So hey, everybody, this is Pete Zugo, Fire and Savior, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Have fun and enjoy the ride. This is Team Jetro Souza from Hatred, and probably every a bunch of other million brash bands that you've heard of in the past. Anyway, you are listening to Third Eye Cinema with the G-Man, so turn it up and start a pit in your living room. <laughs>
<laughs> awesome. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Chris from Hailstorm, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Yar. <laughs> well, yeah, I hate yeah. myself. <laughs> hey, this is Davey Vane from Vane. I want you to get very close to your speakers right now, right up against your speakers, because you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Well, hi there. This is Georg and Thomas from Serenity, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey there, this is Marcos from Uprules, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Enjoy it. Hi, here's Matt Sinner of Primal Fear and Sinner, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Okay. Here are you, start out. Hi, this is Mirai from Psy, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is Dr. Mechanical from Psy. You're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is Nice Rocket from Onslaught, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hello, this is Diego Valdez, singer of Helker, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. Stay tuned. Uh, this is Tony Patel from Whiplash, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. So now we're at probably the fourth major lineup change, not including all that revolving door business in 2013 to now. And mm-hmm. Peterson's gone, and now you got John Schaefer back, and now you've got a new singer who's, I think he's kind of unlike Manzo or Bryant, or Clint Bauer for that matter. So how did you find Eddie, and why another, I guess, reasonably radical change in vocal style, giving you a return to the more power metal sound of No Escape and Under the Spell? Well, uh, our bass player, Mike Horn, actually came across Eddie, and he thought that he would be a good fit for us that I'd never heard of. You know, I've never, you know, I've been kicking around the Bay Area my whole life, and I'd never heard of him. You know, I, I'm looking out for guys like that because they don't grow on trees. You know. <laughs> yes. So, um, so he put, gives me a link to this guy's page, and I go, "Fuck, this guy's great. You know, he'd be perfect. You know, where's this guy been all my life? You know." So Mike contacted him and made him aware of the situation, and Eddie was totally into it. He's been playing and kicking bands around the Bay Area his whole life. He's our age. He's in his mid-50s. Right. And uh, he just never got in a band that, you know, rose to any kind of recognition. You know, he'd never uh, made a record. He'd never been on tour. I don't think he'd ever even played outside the Bay Area. When we went and played the Milwaukee Fest a year back, that was the first time he'd ever been on an airplane. Wow. So he's been the Bay Area's best-kept secret. <laughs> so, so we snatched that fucker, man. He's ours. <laughs> I've mentioned Mike Howe earlier, and even with his gargle glass tones otherwise, when Eddie holds a note, you can hear something very much in that ballpark. Yeah, we, we're lucky that way. Um, you know, that's not the kind of thing you could say, look, man, I want you to sound like this and like this and like this. This is Eddie naturally. You know, that's just his influences, you know. He was heavily influenced by the singer from, the first singer, I think, from Vicious Rumors. I forget the guy's name. So he's he credits him and, of course, you know, Dio and... Yeah, so we we didn't go out of our way to say, okay, we want you to try to sound like Metal Church, you know, we want to sound like Jews Priest. I don't listen to that stuff when I'm driving around, you know. It's like, it, but it's just in my my psyche, my being, you know. That that music is what I really love, and so we're getting a lot of reviews and things that are comparing us to Metal Church and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, which I think is high praise. I mean, if I, you know, I'd rather have that than them comparing us to Wham or George Michael, you know. <laughs> So it's like, I'm okay with it, you know? She was white. So the only song you brought over from either of the recent demos that you had done with the other guys was Swimming the Witch. So why that one in particular? Uh, well, Swimming the Witch, the demo didn't really come out the way we wanted it. Uh, the tempo, we had, we had to adjust the tempo. Uh, I just, 
I just wanted to redo it because I had some other ideas for it and I had another verse for it and I wanted uh, to have Eddie sing on it. It evolved. It, plus, um, it was actually the uh, the main riff is actually Bill Peterson wrote that riff back when we were recording, making songs for No Escape. And it didn't, Mike Barney didn't like it or we, we for some reason or other, we didn't end up using that riff. We were building a song on that riff and it didn't get used. And so I, I liked that riff and I wanted to do something with it. So I built the song around that, that main riff. Uh, that's why I, so I invited Bill to play bass on that track because it's his riff. And then uh, we were trying to, I decided I wanted to have like an intro for that song too. And um, me and Bobby Wright were each came up with our own little weird intros. And then, I said, hey, I was just I checked with John Marshall. Hey, man, you want to come up, try to come up with an intro for the song? Because so the ones me and Bobby were doing, they're they're okay, but it just wasn't didn't seem right. And I sent the song. We had recorded the song, and I sent it to John. And I go, hey, man, you got any ideas for an intro for this? You know, and he came up with this killer intro that that we have on the track now. So that was cool. I got to have John Marshall play on the track and Bill Peterson, and um. But yeah, Swing the Witch actually isn't the only song from the demo of Dark Void of Evil was actually part of the um Up from the Grave. It was there was an incarnation of that. You know, but it was all but that was all Manzo's vocals and Manzo's lyrical phrases. The the song you hear now is the way I originally wrote it. Oh, Dark okay. Void of Evil. So Manzo wouldn't sing my lyrics or my vocal phrasing, so that's why it's different on Up from the Grave demo. Okay. But that's that's where that song came from. That's how it was supposed to be, but so it's finally it's finally the way I wanted it now. <laughs> <laughs> so jumping back for a second, we had mentioned the box set a couple times. You have a liner notes book in there that I just can't believe. Not only is it practically a magazine, it's it's over fifty pages of really tiny print, people. But you are so refreshingly, amusingly honest. If it doesn't already come across here, uh, anybody who hasn't indulged yet to see this thing to believe it, because it's filled with soul searching and self doubt. It's marked by directness, if not bluntness, throughout. And you get a lot of out and out comedy. I mean, you guys, you let it all out and name names along the way. It's almost like an autobiography in miniature. So, what was, you know, what were you thinking here? Was that your thought? Like, here, it's finally somebody's going to hear my story. Let me just go for it. No, no, no. Actually, the way that came about was. Um... There's a guy in uh, Poland. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Robert Grashik, I think. He's uh he did Pure Metal magazine, and he asked me to write an article for his magazine. Uh, he wanted to know the entire story of you know No Escape. So you write write the No Escape story. You know how you guys went from Paradox to to this, and I'll print it in my magazine. You know. Right. Go. Oh, okay. So I. I want all the details. The more details, the better. You know, however many words it is, I'll print it in the magazine. So the the more the longer, the better. So that being said, I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, <Wow. laughs> remember you asked for it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I wrote it. I wrote, you know, the no escape story as we call it. And he liked that, and it went over well in the magazine. And this is all before the box set thing started was happening. So. Uh, then he says, hey, you know, that was really good. Why don't you do one for the No Escape story? You know? And I go, oh, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, I, 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 the, I mean, I don't know how many pages the No Escape story was. It was a lot. It was, yeah. you know, six or 8,000 words or something crazy. And uh, But they like that. They like the drama, and they like to know the, the story. So, I, you know, you want to know the story? Okay, I'll tell you the story. So I did the same thing for Under the Spell. And then he goes, hey, that was great. Why don't you do one for Quest for Sanity and Watery Graves, period. So I did one for that. And then later on, and he, put, he printed that. 
So I'm, we're getting press and pulling. Like, That's great, you know. And the story's being told. By now, I'm kind of warming up and to the idea of, you know, writing these little stories. But I wrote them all separately, you know, for the for the magazine. Right. And, uh, and then, of course, I did the morbid reality story. So I had all these. It was already written, basically. And Armin Steiner from Metal Blade, you know, when we were talking, you know, we were getting ready to put together the you know, all the details for the box set. He goes, yeah, Dan, why don't you send me some liner notes? <laughs> <laughs> so I go, oh, oh, okay. Well, hey, man, look, I got all this. You know, but and I had them all together. I had, you know, um, the No Escape, None of the Spell, Quest for Sanity, and the Morbid Rally story. They all just, just kind of tie into in together, you know, chronologically. Right. So I just uh, I sent them all those, just kind of like, man, here, just pick whatever bits you want out of all this mess. They actually took the time to read it all, and they they they, <laughs> hey man, this is great. Let's let's fuck it. We'll put, this is great. Let's just put the whole thing in there. And I go, oh really? Oh, are you sure? That's a lot. Man. <laughs> It's like a novel almost, you know. Yep. And uh, they loved it. They thought it was great. You know, all the the, the bachelor party stories that we're yes. we're, we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, you know, the 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 one in, involving you know, Kirk. You know, they're I think we're gonna get in trouble with this. And I go, we should probably shouldn't print that. And and they, the guys at Metal Blade talked it over, and they said if there's any problem, they'll handle it. So so it hasn't been a problem yet. So, <laughs> but nice. it, let's just say that I. I had to water that down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you realize that the very next thing I was going to say was I got a particular kick out of the trio of bachelor parties, one of which was Hammett, so you covered yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> and you also tell a rather bleak but kind of schadenfreude amusing story about living in a trailer with weeds coming up through the shower drain. Yeah, that... we were poor, you know. We were... hey, it happens. Yeah, and so we were... That it was a dismal time. It was right around. It was when No Escape came out. Oh, and uh, something I never did write about was uh, right after the album came out. I was working in a a factory. Um, where I was a crane operator, among many things, in this industrial steel factory. Right. And um, I was the album had been out a few weeks, and I was I was grinding on. I was grinding barbs and things off these metal pieces, you know, and the grinder. You know, the, the the pieces of metal I were grinding on were weird shapes and stuff, and the, the grinding wheel kicked out and, and and kicked back and just within an instant sliced into my my wrist of my left hand. Oh! And just opened it up, and uh, I had to go to the hospital. Yeah, I had a really bad cut. It almost I still have the scar. You didn't sever any tendons or anything, so I was just playing. Oh, it was very close, but at the wow. time. It was a deep wound, you know. It was, you know, grinding wheels go through yeah, sure. like butter, you know. Jeez. So, yeah, man. And I thought, you know, I was in a cast and, you know, couldn't do shows. And I was so depressed. I thought, well, that's it, man. I just fucked, you know, I just, because they didn't know if I'd ever play guitar again. Yeah, sure. And uh, so, yeah, for the, for that to heal, it took months. And um, there were, that was a very dark time because I thought, I thought I was done, man. I fucking finally got to do a record, and then I just cut my hand off. <laughs> but it healed up, and obviously I can still play. So it was just close calls like that. You know, why do we have to cut these things so close all the time? You know, <laughs> exactly. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention your blow by blow on a San Francisco earthquake. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's just plenty, of, plenty of drama to go around. Huh? <laughs> uh huh. So, what are plans for Hex now? Are you planning any tours of the U.S. or Europe on the strength of Rap of the Reaper? Well, no, we don't. Again, we don't have any tour support. We're we're doing a couple local shows. We're playing next uh, next Friday 
this little place called Toots Tavern in Crockett for our CD release show. But our um, we did our CD release show um, two weeks ago, but our our CDs never showed up and they're lost somewhere. Oh. In, so we're gonna do our second CD release show without any CDs. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm starting to think, man, I, I should the never. The continues. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking I should never have named the band Hex. You know, I should have. <laughs> 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 right, you should name yourself like you know, good luck or something. Yeah, Feng <laughs> Shui, something you know. <laughs> so, do you have anything else you'd like to plug, or do you want to point listeners to your website or your Facebook page? Yeah, uh, we have a new website up. Uh, it's hexmetal.com. From there, you can link our Facebook pages and, and all the information about the bands there. There's links to where you can purchase the the stuff. We have T-shirts for sale, that kind of stuff. We're we're hoping to get enough attention with the record to where you know the powers that be in Europe might be kind enough to invite us to perform at another festival or two so we can I'd like to show the, especially the European fans that we're not a bunch of bumbling idiots and we can actually do this if we can get another chance <laughs> <laughs> you guys have more bad luck I tell you <laughs> well you know uh, you, you gotta roll with it but you gotta have a sense of humor with it at this point you know every time something like that happens I just I laugh. Well, you know, and it makes for good stories later on in life, right? That's true. <laughs> so with that, then, I'd like to thank you again for joining us here on Third Eye Cinema. And, you know, get another album out. We'd love to have you back on. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah, actually, we got a, a two-record deal with High Roller Records, so technically oh, nice. we are supposed to do another one. So if this one does well, we, we just might come back with another one. All right. <laughs> thank you so much, Gene. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye. And to close out our interview with Dan, here's another one from Hex. This is Screaming Sacrifice.
Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our up-close-and-personal interview with Dan Watson. Next time on Third Eye Cinema, power metal legend Mark Bridey of Jag Panzer. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or your filmmaker, musician, would like to join us on air, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Third Eye Cinema. Check us out on Twitter at Third Eye Cinema. Or you can drop us a line at our website, thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com. If you missed any part of this or any other Third Eye Cinema broadcast, just visit our website for links to the shows in question. Inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the comedian, the career, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream. As we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. 
Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. (laughs) 